Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 491st episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a widely admired veteran actress whose nearly half-century in show business has been highlighted by a Best Actress in a Musical Tony nomination in 1982 for the original Broadway production of Dreamgirls, and a Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy win in 2022 for ABC's ongoing Abbott Elementary the latter of which made her that award's first black winner in 35 years, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Over the course of our conversation at her Los Angeles home, the 66-year-old and I discussed her fast path to a career as a professional actress and her bumpy journey to opportunities worthy of her talents, why in 2001 she walked away from the highest profile screen acting job she'd had up to that point, a major part on UPN's trailblazing comedy series Moesha, and how close she came following some very slow years after that to walking away from acting altogether, the fateful series of events that led to her meeting Quinta Brunson and landing the part of Barbara Howard, a kindergarten teacher on Abbott Elementary, and how she feels about the career renaissance that she is experiencing now as a result, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ms. Ralph, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to have you. And <laughs> Good to be here. This podcast, we start right at the beginning. All Would right. you uh, please share with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, my goodness. Born and raised. You know, it depends. Let's see. Where should I be born and raised today? <laughs> oh, since it's overcast and I'm feeling like sun, I'll choose born and raised in Jamaica, although that would only be halfway true <laughs> since my dad was the American and my mother was the Jamaican immigrant. So then it could be Connecticut, which would make me a nutmegger. And the the point there would be that my dad wrote the state cantata for the state of Connecticut called the nutmeg. And then in my imagination, wherever Tinkerbell was born, that's where <laughs> I was born. And I was raised in a land of sparkle and glitter. There you go. There you go. <laughs> my dad was an uh, 
educator, musician, ended his career as a college professor. My mom, a great designer, woman of God, and just the goddess to the God that was my dad in our family. They were just, they were wonderful people. And I was so happy that somehow the universe had me choose them as my parents. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand maybe because they had some very high expectations for their daughter, that you were a very excellent student all the way through. Um, can you just explain? I mean, this is kind of crazy. 16, you're starting at, at Rutgers, graduating by 19 in just three years. I mean, where, what was it? Wh where did that academic drive. Was it from your folks? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, my dad told me I can do whatever it is I want with my life after I graduate <laughs> from college. <laughs> so you, you were know? in a rush. <laughs> oh my God. I, you get it. Yeah. I was absolutely in a rush to get on with my life, which kept me out of doing a lot of things that other people were, were trying or experimenting with or caught up in. I didn't have time for that because I had to graduate. And I'm an immigrant's child, so there was no just graduating. You had to graduate well, okay. like top of your class. And if not top of your class, then very very close to right. it. You know, there was there was nothing. It was not about being ordinary. It was not about just getting by. It was about making everybody proud of exactly who you were. So the idea then of getting into acting, which I think happened while you were at Rutgers, kind of, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and at other campuses, apparently. But like, was that a tough one to break to the folks? Uh, that was a very tough one to break to my immigrant mother. Oh, my God. The fact I remember my mother when I was there at Rutgers and I realized I wasn't going to be a doctor. I was not going to be a lawyer. And I was on no track towards marrying one. So <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to live her dream for me. And when I told her, she said, what? You're going to use our hard-earned money to be one of those fake and phony people. What's <laughs> wrong with you? You know, she was really very angry. But it was my dad who said to me, you came into this world with your mother, but you will probably leave this world alone and you better be happy with the choices that you have been, you have made for yourself. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is may seem like a random question, but I think it will set up a, a, maybe a couple of order, a couple of events that we should cover. Who was Virginia Capers and what was the role that she played in your life? Wow. I called her Aunt Virginia Capers. I was, I won my freshman year in, at Rutgers. I won one of the top 10 college women in America, Glamour Magazine. Wow. And uh, they would put you, they would do this thing of putting you with uh, people from your industry that made a difference for you. And I wanted to meet Virginia Capers because she had just won the Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical, Raisin. And they set me up with her and it was a lifetime relation set up. She stuck with me for the rest of her life. Uh, of you know, all the people, what do you think it, that you could have asked to meet? Why do you think she was the one? First of all, she I knew a bit of her story as an actress, 
And she was always, she would always say things that she was just more than big mama on the couch, you know, but she was a large woman and a large black woman. And very often they were relegated to certain types of roles. And she always encouraged me to seek more, to seek higher. And if I didn't see the roles, ah, if I didn't see the roles written for me to write them, mm -hmm. to write these stories. Which you have done. Yeah. So yeah. you met her, that was during college. Mm -hmm. How did you mark graduation day? <laughs> graduation day for me was truly a graduation day yeah. because the choice was very simple. I had been cast in a Skippy peanut butter commercial <laughs> and nobody in my family seemed really pressed about sitting in the hot sun <laughs> to watch me get a piece of paper that they were going to mail to me anyway. Right. So it was like shoot the Skippy peanut butter commercial or sit in the hot sun for the right. paper they're going to send you. <laughs> and more and more, the money that I would make from that Skippy peanut butter commercial, do you know it kept me from having to do anything other than work on my skill as an actress? Having that lump of money mm -hmm. right as soon as I graduated. And in fact, it, when I think about it now, the amount that I made is probably the amount that any other student was going to make in the year. Yeah. And I put that money aside and I remember saying, wow, I am free to do what I love. Which again, which is you're that. only 19, yeah. right? When you graduate. So that's when I think some freshmen are just getting there, just getting there at 19. Right. So you're, you're out in the world and pretty quickly, I wonder if you can talk about, I guess there's like a USO tour. Yes. Right. And well, you did some <laughs> research, baby. Lord, well, you know, yeah. mm. but this is really amazing because you were heading in this direction of, of pursuing this professionally, but I don't know, it doesn't sound like maybe your parents were totally convinced that this was something that was going to last or whatever. On this USO tour, your return trip, I guess, was really like a, a decisive, definitive moment in your life, right? Absolutely. I, you had a choice. You either connected in Los Angeles, LAX, mm -hmm. or you connected in San Fran because we were coming from, you know, way in the Micronesia, right? That was where we left on this big, you know, like the big, big jets that you see in the movies and stuff where there are tractors and, and trailers and, you know, all of those things yeah. loaded into the back. And then you just see people on the side. Yeah. yeah well, I was one of those people <laughs> on the side. It's like an aircraft carrier. A, a aircraft yeah. carrier. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we land and I get there. Uh, to LAX, and I'm just like, I'm not going to New York. I collect my luggage, because you were supposed to collect it and put it on the next flight. Mm -hmm. I collect my luggage, and I go right outside, and I call my dad, and I say, the question in the family is, do we have any family here? Right. And he had just, as fate would have it, hung up talking with his cousin, Mabel, who he hadn't spoken to in years. Where does she live? She lives in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and literally about a mile or two away from me now. And I think about that all the time and how she literally opened her door to me and changed my life. So instead of literally your family was expecting you in New York that day, oh, it was yeah. the last minute you called an audible. Mm. I just, I just knew that I was not going to New York. 
I just knew that my life was going to start right here in L.A. I didn't know how. I didn't know when, but I believed it. And I said to my dad, Dad, I just need a place to stay. I'm, I'm, I'm not coming home right now. And it was just, it was just supposed to happen just that way. Cause the very next day, everything changed. So let me, let, let, I should, I should, of course, follow up then. What was the next day? Very next day was, uh, you know, back in the day, you used to have a thing called a service mm-hmm. and people would leave you messages. And I had days and days of messages from a past professor uh, who was my independent study teacher, Chris Kaiser, mm-hmm. saying, where are you? Call me back. And when I landed, I called Chris Kaiser back and he said, you have got to be at Warner Brothers tomorrow. This is the last day Sidney Poitier is seeing actresses for his next film, A Piece of the Action, mm-hmm. and you have got to be there. And Mabel, who had not driven in years, and I was too young to get a um, rent a car. I didn't have a credit card, and all of these things were stacking up. How am I going to get to Warner Brothers? And she rented the car, or I rented the car under her name. Mm-hmm. And do you know it took us an hour to get from Sunset and Highland to <laughs> Warner Brothers Studio? Can you imagine? Was that traffic or just getting lost or what was going on? She was so nervous. Oh, too nervous. She was so nervous. She was driving like maybe 10 miles an hour. <laughs> and it was, and she was chain smoking. It was one hand on the wheel and another hand <laughs> on a cigarette out the window. Were out you the window. also nervous? I mean, you're going to a big Hollywood studio for the first time on your second day in L.A. Yes. I was just... For Sydney Poitier. Thank you. <laughs> I could not believe that it was happening to me in that way. I mean, who writes a better script storyline? If it was in a movie, they would say, no, it That's doesn't crazy. happen like that. It's crazy. You know, but it happened just like that. And when I walk in there, there is Tamu, who was a fine actress, had just come off Claudine. of Claudine, exactly. You know, so she, I mean, Tamu. Yeah. And then Pamela Poitier, his daughter, another wonderful actress. And then there's me. Who's not getting this role? <laughs> but I said, you know what? I got this shot. I'm going to have a story to tell, mm-hmm. and he's going to just see me. I'm giving it my best. I got the job. So this was 19, well, the movie comes out in 77. I don't know. Maybe it was a year earlier when this- so I think it was 77. 77, okay. Yeah. Um, but I guess one of the things I, uh, yeah, so that was that was the beginning. And you that you have this great monologue in that uh, part, and it's interesting. That was also a Barbara. You're now playing another Barbara. Barbara Hanley. Yes, the, yes. The cat, the, I always say, too, that Barbara Howard is such a great teacher because she was Barbara Hanley. Grew up to become Barbara. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, first of all, the fact that you tr- you saw before you even knew that you had that audition, that you decided to come to L.A. rather than New York. Yeah. Did that mean that you envisioned your future in screen acting rather than stage acting? I just envisioned my future as an actress. Okay. I I just knew that that's where I belonged, somewhere in entertainment, acting, singing, not particularly dancing, you know, writing. I love producing, you know, bringing people, the right people together to create the right magic, to create, you know, better projects. I love that, but I knew it was definitely show business, definitely show business. 
and you have so you have this first experience right out of the gate working in this film for Sidney Poitier. And at the end, you have said that maybe that was the first kind of reality check that you had where uh, about what you were up against in this business. It's not always going to be that easy that you show up and you get a call on your answering service to, you know. So can you share what project comes to an end? What does he have to say to you? Hmm. Uh, Mr. Poitier was very, you know, it was really good to me as a director, as a producer, as a human being. And I guess, you know, maybe he saw talent and he basically said that he was sorry that the industry did not have more to give me because I was deserving of more. And the fact that, you know, we all, all of us, this classroom full of young black talent, that it was definitely not going to be easy for us and that basically some of us probably wouldn't make it, you know, just not because we didn't deserve it, but because the chance and the opportunity was not there. And, uh, you know, we had hair, makeup, wardrobe, all of those things that were set up for us, understanding what our needs were as young actors of color, black. And um, so I got a little box when it was all over with, you know, all the makeup tools and things like that and a book about acting. And I don't even remember who that book was by anymore, but a book and um, that said, you know, if it's meant for you, you'll carry on. And he said, Shirley Ralph, I expect great things from you. Pretty cool. Well, so those next few years, that was 77. I see some, you know, uh, essentially, I guess, guest parts on TV. You're in Good Times in 78, The Jeffersons in 79, Broadway for the first time, Reggae in 1980. Yeah. Short run, but that must have been a pretty big deal just to have made it there. Yeah. But at that time, I guess, when that one ended is when I imagine it seems like maybe the the seeds of Dreamgirls started to come together. And I, I just want to ask you about that because what I don't know that I fully appreciated until I prepped for this and what I'm pretty sure a lot of other people don't realize is that before there was ever Michael Bennett involved, before there was even Jennifer Holliday and a lot of the other people who are associated with that, it was really you and two other, your two other actresses yeah. at like workshopping this and developing it. So how did it even get going? You know what? It started out as just, like you said, an idea for a project. Tom Ian had been uh, working on a seed of an idea for a wonderful actress at the time, musical actress called um, Nell Carter. And Nell Carter had won the Tony for Ain't Misbehaving. And he wanted to do this show about a girl group. And, you know, that was the 40s. So the ideas was a girl group in the 50s. But uh, she ended up getting, um, give me a break. She left, came to Hollywood. And then we went on a pause. I went halfway around the world again, came back. Then my, Tom Ian said, we're going to meet Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett liked the idea. Joseph Papp had passed on the 
idea. And now we're in front of Michael Bob Avion. And we are now toying with the idea maybe we should be a 60s girl group. And we're going through these workshops and these singing and the presentation. And it's me, Loretta Devine, and another actress who has since passed away called Ramona Brooks. And uh, workshop after workshop, development after development, it gets to the point with Michael. And then we discover a great young talent, 19 years old, and that is Jennifer Holiday. Mm-hmm. And everything starts to now stick together in a magical way. And December 20th, 1981, we opened on Broadway at the Imperial Theater and everything changed. So... I wanted to ask you, actually, if you could describe the reception, because both, I guess, from your family, who was seeing you in a giant hit for the first time, or what, or just even before it was a hit, just that it's opening and it's clearly special, but also the way it was received by the world. Because I found this article from 1982 where you are telling the New York Times, quote, we're not just a black show that's a hit. We're a hit that's about regular human beings who happen to be black. And this show is getting rid of a lot of black stereotypes, close quote. So in the same way that I guess, oh right? Wow. And I mean, but it was, it's it's sad that it it was still a, had to be a groundbreaking thing in, at 1981, 82 to have that. But I mean, I guess in in the way that it was just such a new concept, like even a Hamilton decades later was a new, open people's minds. This seems to have done the same thing. So can you just describe the way it was received again by your family and by the world? My mother was not excited. Going my, into my it. My mother was not excited going into it. Not at all. She was still upset because she really wanted a doctor or a lawyer. Right. My mother was is, was very funny. She was shocked that Barack Obama was the first black president of the United States because she was so sure it was going to be me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she was not thrilled right. about this whole show business thing at right. all. Then I got nominated for the Tony. Just 23. Yeah. And she was... She was like not going to hold on to her thing. She wasn't going to go until all the press started happening. And then one day I heard my mother said, that's Sherry Lee Ralph. That's my daughter. That's my daughter. <laughs> and everything changed then. My my dad was so happy, so proud. You know, in, in his mind, he could see it. Mm-hmm. And he said, if your mother doesn't want to go to the Tonys, trust me, you and I are going and we'll be sitting right up front. <laughs> And she ended up sitting behind us because she said, no, she didn't want to go. And we didn't get her her ticket until later. But it was um, it was amazing. They were after that, they were so supportive. And, you know, the world responded to to Dreamgirls in a way that it hadn't happened in such a long time. And it wasn't just the New York entertainment or the U.S. entertainment. It was the world responding to the music, to the costumes, to the beauty of the cast. And, you know, the way people were being more receptive of a new kind of beauty. It was it was crazy, but crazy wonderful. Could you enjoy it in the moment, though? Because here's let's just state 13 Tony nominations, including obviously the one we've just talked about for you, Best Iverson Musical. But, you know, you you read these stories about how, and I guess it's not probably an uncommon thing on Broadway about how people try to push buttons to get reactions of 
performers or yeah. whatever. But I mean, it sounds like Michael Bennett, while uh, uh, obviously being a, a very talented person, could mm -hmm. be a little sadistic, maybe is the word in rehearsals. Uh, then you've got, you know, just fueling the rivalry, I guess, even hear these stories about opening. I don't want to harp on it, but I just wonder, did it make it hard to actually enjoy it while you were in it? Oh, absolutely. You know, after, after so many years of working and developing it, you don't want to feel less than. Mm -hmm. You want to feel like what you are, a founding creator. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to be... You want to be acknowledged for the work that you put in, in creating what has become groundbreaking theater, musical theater in American musical theater history. And to be in some ways ignored, to in some ways feeling less than, I just started learning so many life lessons and sometimes Sometimes hard lessons learned are exactly what that is, mm -hmm. a hard lesson learned. Mm -hmm. And the point for me is not to repeat it again, yeah. to learn from it, to be better because of it. And, you know, there's a saying that um, Sankofa, that means you go back to reclaim everything that has been taken from you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like by learning, and I, it, maybe it was a mistake not having good representation, not having lawyers to look over these things, but being so young and so wanting to move forward that you just sign on the dotted line and you don't know exactly what it is you're signing. Because they basically took advantage of, right? I've got not again. I don't. I don't want to harp on this stuff. But my understanding was like you guys. You, I don't know who. Maybe you and and Loretta, uh, Loretta, and maybe Ramona. I don't know if her would have been. But the three originals, yeah, had were kind of talked into signing away the the rights to this. Absolutely, Ramona disliked it so much that she left. Mm, she the left experience. the project. Yeah. She she did not feel good about any any of what was going on, mm. and she left the project. And um, Loretta and I stayed on with the project because uh, we both felt that it was going to be major, and yeah. we were like, "What? Well, we're sticking with this." Right. So that was a big choice for us. And yes, parts of this, it was disappointing, but we made the right choice for yeah. ourselves. Yeah. As young artists, we did the right thing and we have learned from it. And I tell, I tell young artists to this day, please don't sign papers without having good representation or knowing exactly what it is you're signing. Right. Give yourself time to pause. Right. You might be signing away something very important to yourself. And, mm -hmm. you know, it hasn't been made right by us. You know, Chorus Line, the same thing happened to them. Mm -hmm. They did a class action suit. They they won. You know, the cast of Dreamgirls chose not to go that route. And who knows, maybe somebody might leave us something in their will mm -hmm. and, you know, things will be made right. And then again, who knows? Yeah. So uh, this, again, you had, you had had your one kind of film experience in Hollywood with Sidney Poitier. Then you'd gone back and done 
Dreamgirls. Mm-hmm. And now it was, I think, like many people who kind of have blown up in the theater. It's like, all right, let's now you, it doesn't pay that well in, in the theater. The, you go to then to Hollywood, like, let's see what what's there uh, screen acting wise. And here's where, again, I've seen you talk about, I guess, some of the nonsense that you ran into where it just, again, the, the ceiling was that was there at the time was hopefully not, I don't, I think it's got to have gotten a little better then I'll leave that to you. We'll talk about, but I mean, what were you hearing? I've heard you talk about what you were hearing from casting directors and people that, uh, as you are now, you know, this, this rising star who's clearly, you know, your talent's been recognized, your beauty, all of this stuff at that moment, people had sort of, you would think, understood out of out of the dream girls experience and then back in LA what's the kind of stuff you're hearing wow it was hard it was hard to come back to hollywood after such a triumphant run and to be faced with people's isms and at that time racism mm-hmm was a real issue and something that was very hard to deal with. You know, I often tell the story of I had a big meeting with a big Hollywood produce, produ- a Hollywood casting director, and he looked at me and just said to my face, everybody knows you're a beautiful, talented black girl, but what do I do with a beautiful, talented black girl? Do I put you in a movie with Tom Cruise? Does he kiss you? Ugh, who goes to see that movie? I was like, oh my God. What do you even say to that when you hear that? I was I was stunned into silence. And I, it was like, if, if it were a movie, right? It was like I'm hearing the roar of the applause from the stage with mm-hmm. this great acceptance and people saying, yes, you all, this is wonderful. This is great. The future is going to be beautiful. And I come here and the man says to me, what do I do with you? And with such a, just that touch of disdain as to, oh, my God. And I, I, I thought to myself, whoa, wait a minute. He just told you everything you need to know that everybody knows that you're beautiful, you're talented, you deserve to be in movies with the likes of a Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. That's where you deserve. And I remember Aunt Aunt Virginia telling me, if you don't see the roles, write the roles, create the roles, build these relationships, work on your career, do you, and, and sort of deafen yourself to what you hear out there. You know, and I was very fortunate. I got an agent at the time, Michael Schlesinger, and Michael would wake up thinking, what are we going to do for Cheryl Lee? And we worked together and started moving things forward until he retired from the industry. But somebody thought about me and that helped me move forward. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So it seems like maybe just to hit on a few of the notable projects along in that era, your first, I think, contracted role on a TV series. This is It's a Living on ABC, three seasons in the yeah. late 80s. We've got your first leading role in a film, The Mighty Quinn. You're the wife of Denzel Washington's uh-huh. character in 1989. To Sleep with Anger, 1990. Charles Burnett. We just I just looked over there and noticed your Independent Spirit Award for yes. uh, Best Supporting Actress for that. Um, and you know we could keep going. I guess uh, the the love interest of Robert De Niro's character in this in this dramedy. Uh, Mistress. Uh, Mistress, 1992, yes. The Distinguished Gentleman with Eddie Murphy, 1992, Sister Act 2, 1993. This is all in, in Whoopi, yeah. late 80s, early 90s. Um, they were very, very good to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it seems like it. However, even I think people might on the outs- from the outside look at it and it's, it seems like, oh, first of all, I think they look at the whole, a whole career and it's like, oh, it's just incremental up, yes. up, up. But there are up, up, and then sometimes two steps forward, and then it seems like maybe sometimes a step right. back, right? I mean, I don't like to. I hate that I have to keep coming back to things where you ran into BS. But I heard about you know one of the things at some point along the way, a spinoff of Sanford and Son. Oh, yeah, that you were to be, I guess, a lead in, and then what happens? That's, you know, it's so interesting. You have your career, these things happen to you, and then you forget about them, you compartmentalize them, and then you think about when it happened. And I go to the table read for that show, I get the job, Mm -hmm. and I'm excited. And I go to the table read, and the producer tells me that I am just not black enough. To your face. Oh, my God. And I, I, you know... What does that even mean? Exactly. You know, was I just not a black enough image of what he thought a young black woman should have been at that time? I don't know. But he said that to me and he fired me. The only upside to that is years later, (laughs) I don't know where I am, but I'm the topic of the conversation. And I see that producer again. And he apologizes. And he said, I was wrong. I did not know what I know now. And um, you are definitely DGA. And I was like, Directors Guild of America. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, damn, great actress. And I was like, wow. Wow. Thank you. Small, small consolation, I guess. Small consolation. But I think what, I think what's important for me is I didn't let that stop me. Right. Is that I made the decision to carry on in an industry that I love and I was going to make a way for myself. Right. Yeah. 
there's a very interesting moment after that period that we're talking about, basically getting now into the mid nineties. Yes. Um, when quote unquote black sitcoms were actually given this real shot. It, unfortunately, it was a moment. It, it was a moment. <laughs> but we're talking about UPN, the WB and Fox. Right. And there's actually, I just, I think it's called Colored by Fox or something. There's a, there's a new, relatively new book that start, sort of deals with this that I picked up and was reading. And actually we had somebody at the Hollywood Reporter who did an in-depth piece a few years ago about this. But I, I wonder, so the, the, probably at the vanguard of this whole, of this whole moment was Moesha. Yeah. And here's one where I think CBS bought a pilot, doesn't order it to series, <laughs> UPN yeah. runs with it, mm-hmm. and it becomes the cornerstone of this Monday night block of, of black sitcoms, the right. top-rated comedy on UPN. Audience grew every year. You're, of course, playing Dee, the stepmother on this show, which... Uh, also, we can note she was a principal, I believe, right? right? So another kind of full circle, mm-hmm. uh, at least with the education world. But such a, I don't know if we appreciate, I'll say, I'll speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I or many others appreciated what a kind of game-changing thing this was when it was on the air and when you were part of it, 1996, 2001. But can you just talk about from your perspective, did you feel like something was changing in that moment that like, why did that moment happen? And then why did it go away? Oh, so much was happening for me. I'll never forget the first time I met Brandy mm-hmm. and I saw her walk in and, you know, she had on her, her braids and everything and her music was playing sitting up in my room, uh, however it goes, you know, and I remember thinking, wow, look what the future has brought <laughs> us, you know, thinking back to when I had my hair in braids and the director asked me if I couldn't find a hairstyle that was more natural, you know, and you're questioning natural for whom? Yeah. And now here this young woman was going to be in that TV box every week and America was going to learn her story, learn about her family, her friends, her life, her music, her song. I mean, all of it was just so, yes, yes, this is just wonderful. And the way everybody across the country, and once again, and slowly, the world responded. You know, we we have an amazing quick response to Abbott Elementary due to streaming. So the world is now seeing it the next day, as opposed to three years later when we were doing Moesha. You know, it took some time for, you know, London, uh, the UK to to pick it up, for uh, South Africa to pick it up. It took years for them to get it. So we were always being rolled out to different parts of the world. But uh, it was just amazing because once they discovered us, it was like, oh my God, they were just so happy. And to this day, to have young people who are now like 35, 36, with kids of their own saying, oh, Miss Ralph, I hated D. I hated D. <laughs> but I get it now. Right, right, right. I understand now. Oh, it's just to have a show like that that has lasted generations, you know, it's it's amazing. And to still be loved for the work. It was hard then because we were doing good work 
but we were we were, we were being we were basically ignored, you know, and nobody valued then what it was that we did. And it's interesting when people look at it now on Netflix and they see this worldwide response to this series that's 30 years old, you know, and it's still brand new for a lot of people. It's very amazing when you're able to do that because that does not happen very often in television. That 30 years later, we're a big hit once again. again. Yeah. It's crazy, yeah. you know, but well, I'm so happy with that. For you though, I think you, one, of the, one of the things that I think I read you saying things that you really uh, liked about the show was that it was projecting, you know, it positivity. was positivity. It's an LA middle, upper middle class family. It's not even directly really about races like an afterthought. That's right. And so the fact that after the fifth season, when you elected to depart, was that related to the fact that I think it went in a direction where suddenly it was, I don't know why, but like kind of introducing things that were, I mean, basically, as I recall, your character's husband suddenly reveals that he's had a child out of wedlock with, you know, it's just this whole thing was totally completely different from what it had been up to that point. Absolutely. Right? So was that upsetting to you? For me, it was very bothersome because Moesha presented such a healthy new way to look at Black people, especially a Black family. The fact that there was love, there was respect, we honored each other, and we were going to work through our problems together. We didn't see a whole lot of that in the TV box, oh. you know? You know, there was a lot of pain. There was usually a lot of fighting. Of course, the, the, the drugs of it all, the prostitution of it all, naked or dead of it all. And here we have this young woman who brings to us a brand new future, a brand new outlook, and, this, and supported by this family who loves her and her brother and all of that. And then they want to tell us that this honorable man, the father, is a liar. And more than that, he has brought the lie into our home. And I just didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. And I asked the question, why? Mm -hmm. And I was basically told, don't ask any questions as to why. And I, it just went against everything inside of me. And then... You know, I love what I do. I love acting. I always say I would do it for free, but I think in my gut, thank God I don't I have to. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, thank God. Don't tell too many people. You thank you. Free. Thank God I don't have to. And I'm still working right. union-wise for right. better contracts because <laughs> there's so much more and better that can be done. Right, sure. But I was like, oh no, this this is no longer feeling good. Yeah, It's not speaking to my spirit. So maybe this is the time when I'm supposed to exit stage left. Well, so, and I guess sadly that whole era of that kind of uh, revolution in, in black sitcoms, right. I, I feel like that's, I don't, I don't mean that in a reductive way, but I see that's how it's often referred to black. It was just centering on black 
characters. Which Jamie Foxx show, right. um, Martin, yep. Moesha. There were so many um, girlfriends. Yes, these so many great sh- shows that just got ignored. And once they fulfilled what this, the, these fledgling networks needed, they just said, well, we don't need them anymore. And they literally just got rid of them. I guess there was sort of a moment where I think it was UPN mm-hmm. and the WB, which yep. were technically broadcast networks, were merged into the CW. That's right. Where it, at this point becomes Veronica Mars and all this other <laughs> but But- it's weird because clearly there had been an audience that was appreciating these shows. Why would you not cater to an audience? Because those isms are deep. I guess. And it's hard for people to deal with the isms because they become a habit or a pattern or a way of doing things. And instead of looking at the true talent, you say, oh, it's just a fluke. You know, all these things happen. Yeah, they happen because you just put them on the path to happen the same way yet again. Can't do that with Abbott Elementary, no, I mean, though. Ah, new new, uh, new day, day, baby. Yeah. New sheriff in town. And and just, I think you mentioned Girlfriends. Didn't the creator of Girlfriends, hadn't she been a writer on Moesha? At one point. At one point, yes. maybe. Uh, but anyway. Yvette. So- um, Yvette. Bowser. Yeah, so you just see the the seeds that can get planted. Maybe it look takes at Mara, years. Look yeah. at Mara Brock Akil. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, such great talent right. came out of that time. We had an executive producer, Ralph Farquhar, and Ralph was very, very instrumental in bringing major talent, grow talent that he felt had a future in this industry that is now, that has added to changing the game. And we're seeing yet another yeah. generation rise up out of it. You said... Quote, for some reason after Moesha, things just kind of slowed down. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is where I quit. Close quote. Did you truly come pretty close to making that decision? Oh, my God. After Moesha, it was hard. I ended up getting a divorce. Uh, You know, I had two kids to see through in life and make sure they are raised happy, healthy human beings. And um, those things happen. And somehow it all just started to, my agent uh, left the industry. And now I'm, I'm, I'm like, kind of like a lame duck in the water. You know, who's thinking about Cheryl? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to land? You know, can, can this little duck, you know, come upright again, you know, and it was hard. And one day I was taking my daughter to junior high, Immaculate Heart, and I passed this big time casting director who says, so what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not doing too much right now. And she stopped and I can see her on the step stopping, turning back. I mean, she says, oh, well, if you're not working, it must be because you don't want to work. But um, do you know who you are? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that woman just asked me, do, do I know right. who I am? Mm-hmm. And she says, when, when you're ready to work, you let me know. Let, let me know. Let me hear from you. And um, I really, really started to gear down hard on where I was going to go, working on getting representation to move myself forward. It was a little bit unstable there. I was underrepresented. I was underpaid for a while, but I was getting 
back in the game. And I had, you know, good friends, a good friend of mine, Aaron Kaplan, producer there at Capital Entertainment. And he was like, I got your next show. I got it. You're going to get it. And um, that was a show that we did on Nickelodeon called Instant Mom. Mm -hmm. And somehow things just started turning around, you know, and that was that. I ended up getting fam and I was on the CBS lot. I met a a young fledgling producer, writer called Quinta Brunson. (laughs) You know, I mean, that was five years ago. That's when you first met? Yeah. And then from that, you she asked you to, or or you you came to be on Black Lady Sketch Show. Yes, I I was just happened to be on Black Lady Sketch Show, and she was it was like she was just studying me, and we just got along well. I just loved her talent. I mean, it was she was doing everything from a handstand to cartwheels and <laughs> acting too. I was like, what in the world? <laughs> and we got along, and then two three years later. Abbott Elementary. And it was so funny the way it happened because she called me up and she said, Miss Ralph. That was when she called me Miss Ralph. Now she just called me Cheryl. Okay. And she said, uh, Miss Ralph, I know you're, you're, you know, you're at that point in your career where you get offered things and that's the way it should be. But maybe if you would like meet some of the folks on this team and you know, I I mean, you, you of course you'll read the script, but maybe you might want to, you know, like read a little bit. And I remember where I was standing. I remember what I had on. And I remember thinking, this could be an easy no, because I could do it in my sleep from what I had heard about it. But something in my gut, I was looking at her And you know that pride I felt when I looked at Brandy? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like now compounded because I'm looking at this young woman who is the writer, creator, producer of this show, going to act in the show. And again, that thing in me is like, yeah, baby, this is what we've been working for. Look at her. And I said, yes, of course, not a problem. Greatest decision I made. Greatest decision I made besides deciding to have my children. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now at this point, when you, when you had that conversation with her, where, you know, you've said it was awkward for her because she knew you should not be having to read for right. anybody but were you being at that point? Was it still because I I I know at one point the idea was maybe you would be or you wanted to be Ava. I figured why not give it a shot. <laughs> I liked the role of Ava, yeah. right? I I loved the I am enough of it all. You know she doesn't give a a rat's tail about what you think about her, whether you think she belongs there or not. She is there. She's doing the job the way she thinks it should be done and a new wig every week. I was like, yes, (laughs) let's try something that nobody would think of me as, you know, you know, and and just a bit hood to it all. You know, (laughs) I said, let's try this. Oh, Quinta Brunson was like, absolutely not. Deal breaker. No. And I'm glad I listened to her once again. Why did she, so why do you think she shut that down? She said to me quite literally, we need a queen for Barbara Howard. We need a queen and you're that queen. And I was like, well, how do you say no to that? (laughs) You don't. Right. And just in case anyone's listening who hasn't yet 
dived into checking out Abbott Elementary. I mean, the the reason I imagine for that is that Miss Howard is so uh, kind of regal and maybe a little intimidating as this as this teacher who's been there forever and the younger teacher played by Quinta Brunson looks up to her and maybe fears her a little bit. And, um, (laughs) but I, I wonder, is there somebody in your own life or some people in your own life who you kind of think about when you are, uh, getting into the headspace to play Miss Howard? You know, there's always my auntie Carolyn, you know, auntie Carolyn was a reluctant teacher turned blue ribbon principal. You know, she really left home knowing she had to do something because everybody in the family has to do something. Mm -hmm. And it's usually done after you graduate from college. So she goes there and they say, become a teacher. And she's like, no, but then she's good at it. And she starts working with deaf children, handicapped children, and she loves it. Then she ends up in the school system and they called her because they needed a great principal and she didn't want to go. And she left and she did it and she turned her school completely around because she believed that her children could do more if more was expected of them. And I just loved that whole mind process and it worked. And her school, Bunker Hill, turned itself completely around because she gave the reins to her students to create a better environment for themselves, a better learning environment for themselves, a higher bar of excellence for themselves. And I think of the magic that one person can do. And you said in your own life, I guess maybe it was back in Connecticut, I think you said your kindergarten teacher was sort of like that for you, right? And Spence. And and I know you'd said you're not sure if she's still, she could be around. I tried to find out. I'm still working on it, but I mean, I I don't see any reason that I haven't come across anything that suggests she's not. So I wonder, I'll let you know if I have any further luck. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Because I really did, you know, you can, uh, not to be morbid, but you're looking for obituaries and things where the school name and the person's name, and I haven't come across anything yet. So that would be amazing. And I don't remember if it was Spence or Spencer, Mm -hmm. but she was young. It was a Driggs and it was kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And she was just, I'll never forget this woman holding my hand. And I, I, and you know, it's so weird when you have these images, I see me, I was four years old and I'm standing next to her and I'm one of the taller ones in the class. And, you know, then, you know, your parents dressed you to go to school because it was a whole thing of the way you looked in my parents' mind, the way you looked was a way of people knowing how much respect you deserve. Because if your parents took this much time in you, this must be, mm-hmm. this must be a fe- someone to invest mm-hmm. in, you know? Yeah, sure. And I can see myself dressed up <laughs> and holding her hand. Yeah. Uh, well, she, uh, uh, that would be pretty amazing if she's hearing this or watching this yeah. anyway. But, and then to, you know, teachers today, as you well know, are obsessed with this show along with many other people. But what is it that you hear most often from people who are doing the job that you're playing someone doing this job? I mean, why does it mean so much to them? Because they feel seen. 
And on top of feeling seen, we respect them and what they do. Mm-hmm. I often tell people, how can we, as a country and a great country, give our most prized resource to a group of people, learned people, every day, and make a conscious decision not to pay them Mm -hmm. for what they do. I don't understand it. How can we as a truly great nation not be at the top of the list when it comes to educating our children? We're at the bottom or to the middle of the list. How is that possible that we should be there and we find it acceptable? It's not acceptable. I don't care where America's children live. I don't care what their zip code is. I honestly believe that all of America's children should be given the same great education because our country deserves it. And you're investing in your own future. Thank you. It's crazy. It's crazy for us not to invest in the future of our nation, of our communities, of the everything of the United States of America. It is unacceptable to me. And I I think that, you know, your show has done a great job of making people sort of think like we we have all these viral videos that people, just as one example of, uh, oh, isn't it great that people, that this teacher has managed to raise funds to pay for supplies and we, we then you actually should stop and think like, why, why is that necessary? Why? And all kinds of questions like that, which I think the show, unlike, and I, I don't mean to generalize, but most of network television today, I don't think is both entertaining and giving much to think about. That's right. But that is kind of what sets Abbott apart. And it's, um, so anyway, I, I guess this all- And kind I love of, that about the show. No, though. it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, kind of all leads up to first last fall, uh, I believe mid-September. September 12th, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. So tell me, I mean, just being, I remember the show and, and you and everybody when the nominations came out, it was a huge deal. And and I remember a very emotional, I think, video from you on the nomination yeah. that you received. But now we get to the big night itself. And I want to ask you, going in, how much of a shot, honestly, did you feel you had going into the night? And <laughs> then when it happened, was that very memorable acceptance speech, which will be played forever, was that something that was sort of mapped out or you just went with it in the moment? Oh my God. First of all, I went to the Emmys, a very proud and happy Mm -hmm. Emmy nominee. Mm -hmm. If I had left the building, I would have left a proud and happy Mm -hmm. Emmy nominee. That Mm -hmm. would last with me my whole career. But when they said, (laughs) Cheryl Lee Ralph, I was like, oh my God, what's happening? What is happening? No, 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 no. And I I said, wait a minute. Am I in the dentist chair and they gave me too much gas? And this is all some deep dream in my head? No, it's not. I'm alive. I'm happening. I'm right here. And I was so stunned. I did not move until I heard Quintus yell, get up. It's you. I 
I, I, I remember just sitting there, just looking around. Then I could hear my kids. Way back, Way right? back. Uh, they were at, up in the balcony. And then uh, my husband is stunned because he's just now standing up behind me. And I, when I look at pictures, he's just looking at me. And I'm like, this, this is not happening. I don't even remember how I got to the stage. <laughs> but when I got there, I was... Uh, you know, I was, it was just, everything was just spinning around in my head and I'm like about ready to cry. And it's like, I can hear my dad say, don't you cry. <laughs> this is your moment. You show them who you are. And then, you know, your voice starts to start to close down on you because you're getting ready to cry. And I took a deep breath and I just started to sing. And when I sang Endangered Species, written by Diane Reeves, it was a song that I've sung for years. For me, it's like my clarion call. It's my centering moment. I'd written a one-woman show called Sometimes I Cry, and that was the opening number to the song. And it just calmed me right down. And then I got this huge roar of applause. And then the next thing happens, this sign comes up. It's a big red <laughs> sign. Stop now. Stop now. And I'm thinking about my career. And I'm thinking about all the things that people had said to me about how I'm not going to make it, how it's going to be difficult to make it, who's looking for you, who's not looking for you, who's not going to cast you, the 10-year wait from my first film to the second film opportunity, you know, and all the little things trying to put it together and build a career and level up, level up. And I thought, had I stopped, had I listened, I would not have been standing right there for that moment of triumph and thank you, God. Thank you to everybody who thought about me to give me this moment. What a joy. What a joy. Now, here's where it gets really weird. Yeah. The person, you, so you were the first black woman to win that award in 35 years? That's right. 35 years. Can you imagine? And this was Jack A. Henry for 227. That's right. But here's, isn't this where it gets really weird? That part that she won for 35 years ago had been written for you? That's what they say. Jack A. tells this story. Marla Gibbs tells this story. I think Maybe I just put it in the back of my mind and didn't think about it. And I'm like that. When something doesn't go my way, I always figure it wasn't supposed to be. And that's fine. They will learn. They will see. You know, that's how I think. And I move on. But they tell the story that I was supposed to get that role, but I didn't get the role. Jack Kay got the role. She won Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy and First Black Woman, yeah. you know, to do that. And 35 years later, here it is. I come and win just when I'm supposed right. to win. Because things, you just, one little thing, or that would have been a big thing, but it would have changed so many other things that it, who knows? What who knows? Yeah. And all I know is, guess what? I won 35 years later. Yeah. It has been a wonderful thing to happen to me. And I've been enjoying all of it. It's just been so good. And especially here, like young people say to me, thank you, Miss mm -hmm. Ralph. Thank you. 
you know, a young man, a young actress was looking at me and she said, you made me believe I could do it. And she's working. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Again, the, the ripple effects of one person. Thank you. Your kindergarten teacher to you to, you know, you can just connect the dots. But I guess to close this out, here we are. That was, that was all for season one. Yes. You guys have had a great, some would argue, even better second season. That, that's the crazy part. Right. You know, people always say to me, Ms. Ralph, you were really good mm-hmm. in season one, but you're a whole nother wonderful yeah. thing in season two. And I'm like, first of all, to hear people say that to you is sort of like, well, okay, thank you. It's come all I mean, yeah. And, and that also, by the way, you know, sometimes shows really do. There's a reason they call it the sophomore slump. You guys have avoided that. Yeah. And in, and. So I wonder, you know, for you now with since people are are currently thinking about uh, the second season and and all of your work in it, what stands out to you most about season two and and where Miss Howard has gone? But also something that I want to follow up about something that you said recently in an interview, quote, I believe that Barbara, and I think you're probably going to see it at some point, is a nuanced character. Anybody who leans so much on one thing, like her church and the godliness, you know she's been through something. What keeps a teacher like that rooted in a school? You know she's been through something, close quote. So I wonder, do you in your own mind kind of create a backstory of what that something is? Do you have that conversation with Quinta about, does she know what it is? Or do you just kind of wait to have it revealed to you and all the rest of us. You know, for me, I have my backstory for the character. Like we were talking earlier, I said, I lean on Barbara Hanley from Piece of the Action, where you see a young girl who did not have the role model she needed, who did not believe that she was even going to get to graduate from high school, because when you meet her there, they're trying to get her on track to graduate from high school. And then I'm sure that Barbara Howard has a master's and is probably working secretly on her PhD, because once the kids get her up to this whole thing of um, technology, she's working on bettering herself because she wants to still be in an industry that she loves. But Do I share this with Quinta? I don't share it with Quinta because, honest to God, Quinta and our writer's room have done such a wonderful job of crafting great characters for all of us. We all work so well together with what has been given to us. There have been some episodes where I have I have felt like, my God, what am I doing? Am I getting paid to breathe? And then when I look at the episode and I'm like, girl, you're breathing right on time, you know? And that's that to me is magic. You cannot, you cannot make it up. You cannot create it. It's got to be there in some way on the page in ways that you can see and some ways you do not see. So I'm very thankful for what they have done because they have given me a character that People love, even with that crazy wig, they (laughs) love this character and her pearls of it all and the wisdom she is able to impart that for some reason in this time, people need to hear it and they're holding 
on to it. And if this character is growing in people's hearts and minds, I'm very, very thankful. And I'm sure Quinta and the writer's room will continue to do what it is they have been doing. And I'm going to let them do what they do best so that I can do what I do best. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for all the great work. Thank you for doing this. And, uh, Cannot wait to see where it goes next. As you, as we said before we sat down, it feels like, uh, you know, just getting started on a, on a very exciting time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels good. Awesome. Thankful. <laughs> Thank grateful. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.